Hello and welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York, on the unceded homelands of the Mohican people who are known today as the Stockbridge-Munsee community. I'm Sally Becker. And I'm Mark Dunlake. Today on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, we begin with the story on the effort to ensure tenants facing eviction have access to an attorney. Then we get an update on the campaign against killer drones for our peace bucket. We then hear a scene of peace, Future of Small Cities Institute, about an upcoming event based on the book, The Fight to Save the Town. Andrea Cunliffe then shares excerpts from the Clean State clean slate rally that took place last week in Albany. And we finish up with another scene of peace, Troy Bike Rescue, who are supporting the upcoming Holiday Interfaith Justice and Peace Circle at Freedom Square in Troy with bike donations. Um, But first, headlines. The century-old signal building at 67 State Street the first building in the city of Troy to serve as a call center for and dispatch for emergencies was demolished on Tuesday after it determined to be unsafe. The Joint Apprenticeship and Training Committee for Tri-City Electricians um, will begin recruiting for 60 regional electrician apprenticeships in 2023. People can call 518 785 5167 for more information. The Daily Gazette reports that plans to bring a mid-sized grocery store to a former used car lot between Albany and State Street in Schenectady are still on track as work continues on various environmental reviews. The county has committed $4 million in COVID relief funds to the project. The county in 2017 determined that such a store was needed to help address food insecurity. The Troy Waterfront Farmers Market Sunday Holiday Makers Market Series will continue from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. on Sunday, December 11th and 18th in the Troy Atrium. New York State Health Commissioner Mary Bassett says health officials are concerned with the tridemic of COVID, flu, and RSV this winter. She urges hand washing and covering your mouth when coughing and sneezing. People are encouraged to stay home if they are under the weather. She also recommends wearing a mask, especially in crowded indoor locations. Congress for a second time has rejected the so-called side deal on benefit and fossil fuel companies that Senator Manchin of West Virginia had sought in exchange for his vote to pass the IRA climate deal. Meanwhile, the victory by Senator Warnock in Georgia means that the Senate will have 51 Democrats next term, reducing the influence of Senator Manchin. That's it for headlines. For our first segment, Mark talks with Canyon Ryan, of United Tenants of Albany about the campaign for the statewide right to council legislation to guarantee the right to a free lawyer for all tenants facing eviction. We're joined by Canyon Ryan, who is the executive director of United Tenants of Albany. And 
they are part of a coalition that is pushing uh, for New York State to uh, pass legislation called Right to Counsel, primarily to help um, tenants, anybody facing a situation who might lose um, their home, access to their property, uh, have the right to counsel uh, in court. So, um, Kenyon, why, why is this legislation so important? And, and, you know, particularly you guys work a lot in Albany. What have we been seeing in Albany in terms of uh, the rights of tenants in court? Yeah, definitely. So thank you for having me on. Um, you know, statewide right to counsel establishes the right of an attorney free of charge in New York State. Um, that includes eviction cases, but also affirmative foreclosure, subsidy termination, appeal proceedings. Um, you know, it's, it's all based around protecting people and keeping them in their homes. Um, so it's not only tenants, but it, it includes bank tenants, manufactured homeowners, um, squatters. What are we seeing in Albany? Um, as of November 11th, 3,800 evictions have been filed. And in quarter three eviction proceedings cases, 1.3% of tenants had representation, meaning 98.7% of tenants didn't have counsel when they appeared in front of the court in eviction proceedings. That's opposed to 94% of landlords who appeared in court with representation. So there's a clear disparity here. And also incredibly difficult is to find an attorney that's willing to take a tenant case. As you call any landlord tenant law firm, they only represent landlords. Um, so it's really important that the state mandates that tenants can have the right to representation. Well, I guess that's also a good point. I, I saw the bar associations actually filed a lawsuit um, because the um, pay for assigned counsel in family court situations has not increased since, again, 2004. And so many attorneys, uh, you know, try to avoid having to be assigned counsel in um, family court situations. How, how, how do you make sure that um, you know, we'll have enough attorneys willing to take on you know, representing uh, tenants in eviction cases since, you know, that's not, you know, you know they're not going to win a lot of money in, in those situations. Yeah. So, I mean, that that's definitely a concern, right? And in New York City, where they have right to counsel, we've seen, you know, phenomenal results, but there's also been a great difficulty in making sure that every tenant has a right to counsel. You know, it's written as a right, but not every tenant who appears in front of a judge, uh, you know, the judges don't always respect that right. Um, so, so what, what are we, how, how are we going to um, make sense of that in our budget proposal that right to council put together? It's a, I think it's five to eight year implementation plan. Um, every attorney would be fairly funded. It would be a progressive tax to finance this. Um, and we would request that there's adjournments until tenants uh, have counsel. So until a tenant is able to go in front of a judge with, with a lawyer, there's no, there's no court proceeding. Um, and then just to add on to that, uh, our thinking is, you know, by progressively laying this out, there will be more and more money found. It'll be a slow implementation that has suitable attorneys. And also not every landlord tenant case requires, you know, 18 to 25 hours of litigation. Often all a tenant really needs is just an adjournment. And then they can be tapped into relevant resources so that, you know, we're not going back and forth to court like you are in most other proceedings, but it's We'll come back in a month if the arrears aren't paid and that's where the litigation really might kick in. But ideally, we don't need to do that. And you can just get tapped into, you know, rental assistance through United Tenants or if the arrears are too high, you can get first month's rent and security assistance. And we're just trying to keep people housed. Now, one of the things I noticed in the press release, um, you know, for the right to counsel was, I guess, statewide, there's like over 270,000 
uh, eviction cases. But also, I noticed in Albany that you know these type of cases for eviction are not supposed to move forward if uh, the uh, landlord does not, I guess, attain a you know certificate of occupancy. And it seems like in like thirty percent of the cases they have not. How do the judges actually react in those situations when the landlord is trying to you know evict somebody but they've not obtained the certificate, which by law they're they're required to have? That's pretty complicated, right? Um, you know, the city of Albany said, if you're going to bring a tenant to, to eviction court for, for non-payment, you have to have a residential occupancy permit. You get one of those every two and a half years. And it, all it is is code enforcement comes, they inspect the unit and they say, yeah, this is livable. Um, so the city said, all right, let's make that standard mean something. <clears throat> so they passed that law. And then the courts actually told the mayor's office when they reached out and said, why are one third of non-payment cases still moving forward without a residential occupancy permit? The court said, you don't have jurisdiction over us, even though, you know, the, <laughs> the city court is actually one of the oldest institutions in New York state and in the United States. Um, so it's, it's just funny to think of it that way. But recently, um, John McDonald's bill that he brought to the assembly, and I think it was sponsored by um, Senator Breslin in the Senate, saying that Albany can implement this ROP uh, expectation. It passed, which is fantastic. So now this is state law. There's a cutout that allows Albany to do this. And so it should cease now. But up until this point, the clerk's office, they were mostly just letting it go through. And in some cases, when tenants raised this defense, the court literally told them, this means nothing to me and brushed it aside and moved forward with the eviction proceeding. Interestingly enough, when legal aid was representing those tenants, that wasn't the case, and the judge respected the law. So that also points to the importance of having a skilled negotiator, aka an attorney, by your side in eviction proceedings. Now, many years ago, um, I had a job uh, running the SUNY Off Campus Association, representing off-campus students, and you know, certainly at that point, the uh, city courts in Albany had a reputation of being extremely pro-landlord. Uh, has that improved over the decades? I wouldn't say it's improved. I mean, in some ways, we're seeing that, you know, Judge Kelly, he's generally favorable to tenants' claims, but Judge Rice, who's a former legal aid attorney, we haven't seen the same result. Um, you know, tenants are still kind of getting pushed through this this eviction mill, essentially. Um, you know, and, and something else I just wanted to add real quick, too, uh, on the cost. There was a, a study done by Stout that demonstrated for every dollar that New York State invested in right to counsel, it would save three to six dollars. Um, so, so the cost savings kind of start generating on their own. It's something I forgot to mention. Now, how is the um, bill faring uh, in the state legislature? Is this a, a new bill? Has it been proposed previously? Um, so last year was the first year that we put in like a substantial effort to get it passed. Uh, and we were successful in the assembly. They passed the C version. And so we went back to the drawing table and said, OK, this is what they, they expect. This is what they want to see. Um, the biggest change this year is that we're trying to push it uh, to get it into the New York state budget because the Senate said we're not going to touch this unless it's uh, you know included in the budget. And you know, less than a third of New York State's recent subsidy um, to the Buffalo Bills Stadium would 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 afford us right to counsel. Um, so it's something that we could put in the budget. Uh, it's just a matter of of advocating for it. And thankfully, um, you know, our assembly members are on on in support of right to counsel. We still need Breslin, um, but I think that he's a movable senator for sure. A little bit of, uh, as a tangent, but, um, you know, Albany did had a good cause eviction law. 
uh, which also put a little bit of a cap on uh, rent raises. It was, I guess, knocked out by Low Corp and reinstated while appeal. Uh, how is that moving forward? Any any progress with that? Yeah. Um, so, you know, Albany was the first city to do it in New York State since I think we've seen six or seven cities implement the same kind of legislation. Ours got appealed after it was passed in August. I think it was appealed in February. Um, and then it got reinstated slash stayed during the appeal process. It'll be heard in February. UTA recently submitted an amicus brief, and we even submitted it alongside the Bleecker Terrace Tenants Association, which was able to organize under the auspice of good cause protections. So I'm confident that in February we'll get a good reaction and say they don't say say they say they say you know no Albany can't have this. It, it's preempted by state law. Well, then that's even more reason to push our state legislators and say. You told us to do it locally. We did. It was denied. Now it's your turn to kind of, you know, step up. So we have 45 seconds left. Uh, has Governor Hochul given any indication she's included in her proposed budget? And if people want more information or express their opinion to their representatives, 30 seconds, how best can they do that? Yeah, so we've been in talks with the, with the governor's office. Um, I would say that they're generally favorable to the concept. And if not, write to counsel. I think that we'll guarantee some extended counsel. If you're interested, um, you know, reach out to United Tenants or uh, write to counsel in New York City who's been leading this campaign. Thank you very much, uh, Canyon Ryan, uh, United Tenants of Albany. And this has been Mark Dunley for the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Uh, I did have an opportunity to ask Canyon about his impression of the situation up in uh, Saratoga Lake with uh, Angela Kaufman and being evicted um, from the trailer park. Uh, his impression certainly was that the um, next door marina who's bought the land is being um, uh, not exactly above board in the work that we're doing. And he pointed out that the attorney general, besides saying that they're investigating, also informed the local uh, board, they can take no action uh, whatsoever until such time as the uh, attorney general completes their investigation. Um, we will continue to follow the uh, story uh, with respect to uh, tenant rights uh, at the state capitol in the upcoming legislative session. For this week's Peace Bucket, Mark talks to Ed Keenan of Upstate Drone Action about their recent day in court over one of their prior protests and the role that drones are playing in the war in Ukraine. For our Peace Bucket, we're joined by uh, Ed Kinane, uh, who is uh, active with uh, Upstate Drone Action. And I understand, Ed, you were recently visiting uh, the local courts to uh, discuss one of your previous drone protests. What was that about? Well, it was very previous. It was 2019. Our court appearance kept being kicked down the road, and then we ran into COVID, and then we ran into a situation where um, one of the judges retired, and then we ran into a situation of, uh, I think the other judge uh, had some health issues. Um, so last night in the DeWitt Town Court, which is a suburb of Syracuse, uh, um, five of us pet perps uh, had to appear because of all these confusing date changes and so forth, and one judge not showing up and blah, 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 we made a plea. We pled guilty uh, just to get this thing off the books, although we don't feel the least bit guilty, which we made clear to the court. But 
They accepted you, our plea of guilty. Could you quickly explain what was the prior demonstration about back in 2000? Uh, it was one of these that actually I'd forgotten the details last night, but it was one of these where we were charged with trespass and... Um, uh, at, at Hancock Air Force Base is where Hancock they operate a lot of the drones? Just north of Syracuse. Right. Um, and they operate the drones in Afghanistan or had been? Well, what they do, it's the 174th attack wing of the New York National Guard. And what they do is train pilots, so-called, and also drone mechanics. The uh, actual drones I don't don't originate in Syracuse, but rather somewhere overseas, you know, near uh, the theaters of war over there. Um, it's a very clandestine kind of operation. They they let out no information about what they're up to. Uh, so are the they, pilots located at Hancock Air Force Base, or are they overseas? Well, the, the training operation is there. The training operation, okay. But the actual planes that... that the MQ-9 Reaper drone, killer drones, um, are already in place over in uh, elsewhere in other countries. Right. But the pilots uh, are also over in the other countries. In no, no. Well, there's staff over there, but the actual pilots are being trained here. Right. Um, but they're, they're operated from over there. I, I know that's confusing. Okay. Um, but that's how things are when you live in a secret state, you know, um, that operates. So, so the judge let you all go after this long delay and not getting a speedy trial? Yeah, well, at some point, we waived our right to a speedy trial, apparently. I don't even remember doing that, but that's what the court papers said. So we had made a plea, and um, we we stood by it. And so the judge, who was judging us for the first time, because he was a new judge on the bench, taking the place of the judge that had been with us for, you know, a decade, who I think has been hospitalized. I'm not even clear about those details. Um, I'm sorry I sound so uninformed, but I live in an uninformed kind of environment here. So what did the judge do last night? The judge heard each of us. Uh, we, we, it wasn't a trial. It was a court appearance, uh, and each of us, you know, appeared before him separately. Uh, and, and, you know, John Amidon from the Albany area came over from there to be in support with us. But he wasn't a defendant. Um, he read some legal mumbo-jumbo. Um, and then we, we confirmed that we had pleaded guilty to what he called was um, the charge was... Uh, disorderly conduct. Now, I'm sure we were also charged with trespass because that's the history before. Um, and then he, uh, you know, he, he granted the plea for which we were fined 100, not fined, court costs of $125. And uh, he was going to give us some kind of probation, but our pro bono attorney who came in all the way from Montauk uh, Long Island uh, said, well, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute. That wasn't a part of the deal. So we ended up not getting any kind of probation. Or no, not probation. Uh, conditional discharge. Okay. Uh, Since we're beginning so to run out of time, 
Well, okay. I, I know we also had wanted to talk about the situation with drones. Um, been a lot of concern that drones are increasingly being used in warfare. And so I understand drones are playing a, a fairly prominent role in uh, the war in Ukraine. And I believe I just heard that um, some of the Ukrainian drones may have actually attacked some bases in Russia. That, that's what the Russians allege. And of course, the Russians also use drones, uh, have been using drones in Ukraine. So this is a, a situation of full-fledged war where both parties are using drones, you know, lethal drones against each other as well as for reconnaissance. And uh, uh, with casualties, we've had reports of casualties. Are there uh, any restrictions on the use of, of, of drones, particularly if they're using them in Ukraine? Obviously, there's a lot of, you know, civilians around. Uh, obviously, oh, yeah, civilians, civilians get killed. Right. I mean, most victims of lethal drones are civilians, despite what the um, the Pentagon says. Uh, I wish I had at my fingertips some of the quotes of some of these high Pentagon guys and, and uh, up to the effect of, oh, you know, we, yeah. we are so careful about not killing civilians. Well, that's, that's BS. You know? So, so are, are the drones becoming uh, more lethal as, as time goes on and technology develops and they get more experience using them in the field to kill people? Oh, I'm sure they do. And, and there's more of a variety of drones or a variety of different, you know, tactics of killing and exploding, you know, bombing things. Yeah, I mean, the Zoom industry has just um, blot blossomed, to use a bad metaphor. Um, yeah, I mean, it's so many countries now actually have drones and are using them militarily. So, so what are some of the military uses, you know, being deployed in the Ukraine in terms of the use of drones? Surveillance, well, actual attacks? You know, on the ground in combat situations, it's a way of knowing where the enemy is. You know, th these are handheld, there's handheld drones that are able to do reconnaissance um, just briefly. I mean, they they don't, they may not last very long. They're handheld. There's some, sometimes they're off the, uh, off the shelf, you know, commercially available. Um, others are more specifically developed for, you know, combat in attack situations. You know, out at Hancock Air Base, it's the 174th attack wing of the New York National Guard. I mean, they say attack wing. I mean, it's obviously being used for, for aggressive, for aggression, and for attacks. Uh, you know, here in the US, we're very blatant about our drone usage. I mean, it's part of the intimidation factor that the US has used its, its nuclear warheads for. Uh, for decades, you know, it's to intimidate, it's the threat that's still being used. It's been transferred down to the. Now we only, we, we only got a minute left. Now the United States, my recollection, is the, you know, biggest um, seller of, of weapons on the planet. Is, is is drones one of their growth market for for selling weapons to other countries? Definitely, the U.S. has sold drones to dozens of countries, and then countries that they haven't sold to, the Israelis have. The Israelis, I think, are maybe second in the industry globally for, for military drones. What's upstate drone action going to be doing in the coming months? Well, we, we're, we're eyeing uh, Martin Luther King 
mid-January, you know, the, the 16th is the uh, the anniversary of his death, but sometimes the events around that anniversary are ten seconds one side or the other. <laughs> um, so that's that's um, in the wings, and we also have we're we're thinking as we have for many years uh, observing Earth Day out at Hancock Air Base. Okay, you had a website, uh, up, upstatedrone.org. Thank you very much, Ed Kinane. This has been Mark Dunley for the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. So on Wednesday, it was reported for the third time in two days that uh, drones from the Ukraine had struck and perhaps destroyed um, Russian uh, Air Force uh, bases. Um, of, of course, it's pretty clear that those drones are coming from the United States. I think what would be interesting is whether uh, the American military is actually involved in uh, piloting um, those drones, which, of course, I know they would, would deny. Uh, but for those just tuning in, I'm Mark Dunley. And I'm Sally Becker. You're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine on the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network. On WOOCLP 105.3 FM Troy, WOOGLP 92.7 FM Troy, WOOSLP 98.9 FM Schenectady, and WOOALP 106.9 FM Albany, and streaming online at mediasanctuary.org. This program comes from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. If you like what you hear, you can support this program by telling a friend, neighbor, coworker, the postal worker, the FedEx delivery guy. Find today's stories and more at mediasanctuary.org. Next, Cena talks with Reef Larson of the Future of Small Cities Institute about Michelle Wilde Anderson's new book, The Fight to Save the Town. The book is the subject of an Institute event on Thursday, December 8th. The Fight to Save the Town, Reimagining Discarded America, is a book by Michelle Wilde Anderson. On December 8th, she will be in conversation with Rafe Larson, founder of the Future of Small Cities Institute. And to tell us more, I'd like to welcome back Rafe Larson to the show. Welcome. Hi, thanks for having me back. Thanks for being here. So what made you invite... Michelle Wilde Anderson, to speak with you, what intrigued you about her book? Yeah, so this book came out this year, and I was just struck, one, with the depth of her reporting. The book tracks four very different kinds of communities that are all in some ways struggling with the idea of uh, entrenched poverty, um, you know, a lack of budgets, um, and sort of these cyclical problems of, like, how do you lift people up and how do you govern communities and how do you change decade-long um, problems the four communities though are quite different so there's uh, stockton california that has it's a very diverse community that's really struggled with gun violence and gang violence uh josephine county oregon which is one of these sort of uniquely american libertarian experiments where they've basically voted any sort of government out of office and cut budgets to like the nth degree to the point where there's like no jail you know it's a mix it's it's pretty much rural but there's also some towns and cities mixed in there 
uh, Lawrence Mass, which may be the location with the most corollaries and, and um, connections with Troy, is that it's you know this legacy uh, mill town that has a lot of immigrants, uh, a history of organized labor, and a lot of issues with its downtown corridors and uh, school systems and so forth. And then Detroit, Michigan, um, which obviously is a larger city, but um, is another example of, of a sort of Rust Belt city that um, expanded rapidly, it was kind of the foundation of the, the middle class in the 20th century, and then went through this rapid kind of shrinking where properties were sort of left to die and bulldozed. Uh, and this whole question of how do you cultivate on a very local level um, affordable housing that's decent neighborhoods that like are looking after themselves. So the sum total of these uh, four really well-chosen examples is I think like an amazing snapshot of America on a sort of neighborhood and town and city level, like what's actually going on you know, above the kind of glamour of 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 DC, like what's happening on the ground, um, and how are people kind of overcoming these seemingly unsurmountable challenges? In conversations around rebuilding communities, there are two groups that may feel left out or discarded. Rebuilding often brings with it gentrification, pushing out black and brown communities. Rebuilding may also signify to some that they're moving away from traditional values, which were built around mining or milling, leaving a discarded America, to use from the title of the book, um, in its wake. How does one rebuild without pushing away certain groups? Yeah, I mean, I think we can all grow, agree on some commonalities, right? That we want to live in safe places. We want to live in places with opportunities, we want to live in uh, places that have, you know, um, areas where we can play and eat and work. We want jobs. So, you know, I think if you ask any voter, <laughs> whether they're conservative or progressive or democratic, they're going to actually agree on a, on a set of commonalities. Maybe the avenues to get there or what they choose to linger on or the buzzwords that they use may be different. But I think when you go go to the heart of it, there there are some real agreements that we all want. I think the the really interesting sort of knife edge that we're on right now is what is the role of government? And particularly, mm -hmm. like, what is the role of government on a very local level? You know, the buzzword of sort of the conservative movement is that we want small government. But, like, what does that actually look like on the ground when we're talking about uh, a town or a city? So, like, what does the police force look like if you cut spending? What does the school system look like if you cut spending? What does um, mental health services, uh, housing, all these, you know, big questions that contribute to overall to the question of like quality of life, but also, you know, to generational poverty, like, ha what happens when you cut away government to the nth degree, I think. And conversely, like, what are the other mechanisms or forces at play because a lot of these places in the absence of a of a, a strong or a funded government have had to lean into community service programs or neighborhood programs or nonprofits or really in interesting sort of uh, community networks to lift folks up to deal with gen things like generational tra trauma and and that's I think where government meets the people and meets like um 
organizations and communities and collaborates with them and ultimately overcomes these challenges, that's like the crux of the issue, right? So that's why these four portraits, I think, offer, you know, a kind of range of of, of examples. And I, I think for me that that word discarded is is important because there's also a tendency in this country to look away, right? If it's not your locality, you're like, well, they're dealing with that over there. So to actually look at it and say, actually, this is not that far down the block. It's right in my hometown. And what like these people or these communities actually have been discarded. And so what's the question is like, how can we pick them up? What what's what are the forces to, to pick them up? Um, and when you start looking at it like that, I think you, you find some really interesting answers. Do you feel like that sentiment is actual here in, in Troy and in the other? We usually focus on Troy as our, our small cities, but the other cities around here too. Yeah, I mean, the capital region is super interesting because you have, you know, the county government, the local city government, and the state government all overlapping here. So you have different layers of governance. And then you have a whole range of, you know, um, academic organizations and medical organizations. And then you have this whole layer of nonprofits and interesting community groups. And I think Troy's at a really interesting inflection point because after decades of really being down and out, you have a kind of thriving downtown, uh, which, you know, is a combination of government investment, private, private enterprise, all these kind of forces coming to work. But then you also have um, neighborhoods to the north and south of the downtown, South Troy and Lansingburg, that are still struggling with a lot of endemic issues. And you often find this where like cities going through boom and bust cycles do so unevenly. So I guess the question is how how can you bring along the neighborhoods alongside a downtown? How can you make sure that you develop and, and, and create equity? And then as you develop, how do you make sure that you don't displace? And I think, you know, a couple of years ago, people were like, ah, oh, we're not there yet. We don't have to worry about gentrification. But I think we are there now. And I think that's that question that you brought up earlier looms really large, right? So how do you build wealth, build economic development, but also bring everyone along? And what is the role of government in that process as well? Right. And gentrification looks many different ways. So it's not always obvious. But before we run out of time, I do want to turn to the Focus Lab, which excitingly just has a new opening, the, the latest exhibition. And we'll do a follow-up segment, but can you give us a little bit of uh, a teaser of, of what's in Focus Lab right now? Yeah, we're super excited about it. It just opened December 4th as part of the Victorian Stroll. And the new exhibition is called Main Streets Resurfaced. And it's a deep dive into what our downtown corridors look like. What's the, been the history of main streets? You know, once upon a time, they were, you know, great walkable corridors where everyone bought all their all their goods and groceries. And then the rise of the private automobile in the 20th century and the rise of suburbanization sort of gutted them and turned them into car corridors. And now, again, we're at this really interesting change point where people are sort of looking at storefronts and stores and these corridors with new eyes, uh, with, you know, under a new kind of what is the um, experiential economy, right? How do we, what can we gain on these mean streets that we can't gain online? How can we transform them into third places, places of community? So this, this exhibition explores a lot of places, including Troy, Poughkeepsie, Kingston, and some Western mass cities as well. And there's a lot to do for young and old. There's, we have a lot of uh, kids' activities. We have a whole playscape back area. So it's, so it's a really fun visit. 
Very interactive. Yes. Um, and there's a really cool 3D map of Troy too. So uh, we had like over 300 people came on the Victorian stroll, but it's I, I really, really suggest you come in and check it out. We're One. open Saturdays uh, 10 to 3, and the exhibit will be up through July. Thank you so much, Rafe Larson. Always a pleasure to talk with you on Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Thank you. It's awesome. I really appreciate it. So a very interesting uh, discussion. I remember a couple of days, decades ago, uh, I tried to start a Green City project while I was teaching uh, at RPI and really try to make Troy a, a model city on how to develop on, on green principles. Um, wasn't successful, obviously, unfortunately, but I think Troy is definitely on the rebound. And I think also a lot of the work that the sanctuary uh, has been doing in North Central Troy is based on a lot of these principles. Um, and, and one thing I think Anderson makes clear in the fight to save town, it's not you know, just about government intervention, it's really about citizens and residents coming together, citizen engagement and, and building up trust over time. For more information, you can go to the future of small cities on November 30th, 2022, a rally in Albany's Capitol Park was held in support of the New York's Clean Slate Act. Hudson Mohawk Magazine's Andrea Cunliffe was there with excerpts from the rally. The Act, State Senate Bill S-1-55, is a new law that will automatically clear a New Yorker's criminal record once they become eligible. A bill will be automatically sealed in the New York State Legislature in time in two years. On November 30th at midday in Albany was a rally for clean slate legislation for New York. <laughs> All right, thank you for joining us. Clean slate, it has the overwhelming support of everyday New Yorkers, of labor unions, Survivor advocates, faith leaders, reentry organizations, business leaders like J.P. Morgan and Chase, Verizon and Microsoft, local government in Westchester, Buffalo, Poughkeepsie, Rochester, Saratoga, Albany, and the New York City area. Clean Slate is a moral imperative, an economic imperative, a racial justice imperative. Clean Slate is a human dignity. As a state committed to equal opportunity and forward movement for all people, we must take action. Pass the Clean Slate Act. Thank you. What do we want? Clean, Clean slate. slate. What do we want? Now. What do we want it? Clean Slate. What do we want? Now. We're talking about jobs in an economy, not just here, but nationwide, where there's a workforce shortage. Right now in the United States, there are 10 million open jobs. There's only 5 million people that are available to fill those jobs. But yet we want to keep people from getting jobs. And that's what happens if we don't pass this bill. These individuals, these people will not get jobs. And so let's talk about some of the misinformation that's out there. Misinformation, number one, this does not give anybody anything. It gives people an opportunity. It gives people an opportunity to be judged by um, the people they are now, rather than the people they were in their past. That's it. It just gives them an opportunity. It doesn't give them a job. They still have to go through the process. They still have to interview. They still have to do things everybody else does. But what is happening with this legislation is they're going to be judged on the person they are now. That's number one. Number two, the Business Council and others have worked very hard to craft this legislation to be fair, not only to the individuals who are formerly incarcerated, but the businesses um, who will end up hiring them. There are safety provisions in there for certain, certain crimes are excluded. 
Um, if you are fingerprint, if it requires fingerprinting, that's excluded from um, the sealing of records. We believe that this bill is a common sense bill. We believe this bill um, helps our community. It creates jobs. It creates economic development. And finally, I just want to say, you know, there's a lot of talk about crime in this country. But what are we doing when we're, when we're not giving people jobs? What are we doing when we're constantly tagging individuals as who they were in their past rather than who they are now? This is why this bill is incredibly important. It's incredibly important because it means jobs, it means economic development, and quite frankly, there's a simple, personal, real reason. It's like, let's take people who have done everything society has asked them to, to do, and let's give them an opportunity. Thank you. Yes, 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 what do we want? Clean slate. What do we want it? Now. Thank you so much for coming out. My name is Honorable Mark Robinson. I'm a former council member of the city of Albany. And I stand here as a justice-involved individual. I personally had did eight years in the federal penitentiary for small amounts of cannabis. Now cannabis is legal in New York State. But coming home, it was a barrier for me to get a job. It was a barrier for me to ha have home. Luckily that I have a family. And what luckily that we believe in hard work. So what I did when I came home, when I couldn't get a job, I created my own job. But what about those that don't have the ability or don't have the family or don't have the resources to create their own? Where did that put them at? And that's why I'm here. I'm here that I think that all laws, you know what I'm saying, should be looked at. I feel that the clean slate should be done. I believe that it should be done now because it's definitely affecting communities of color. And I believe that moving forward, that we have to have a clean slate. We have to look at those that, that have been over-policed. We have to make sure that justice is being served, but we have to also make sure that once those that return from incarceration, they have a right. They have a right to live. They have a right to make a living for their family. And th that's why I'm here. I'm here to support Clean Slate. And when do we want it? Now. now. Clean Slate. Thank you. Can't wait. Thank you for having me today. I appreciate it. My name is Justin Chairs, Vice President of NAACP in Schenectady, as well as Head of Shriners in Albany. Um, sit on multiple boards and uh, ran recently for assembly for New York State. And as the young people came in, the energy picked up. And it's cold out here. But I'm going to tell you, it gets real cold for a lot of people who can't get a well-paying job to make sure they keep a roof over their head as we face housing insecurities. And as our youth, as an educator, first and foremost, because I teach general special education, when you make those decisions, and I'm talking to our lawmakers, when you make the decisions to keep people from getting well-paying jobs to create more barriers, you're not just hurting that person, you're hurting their families because these are our community members. And a lot of legislators forget that these are our community members. No matter what past mistakes they may have made, they're here now trying to do all the right things. They did all the right things in their home, and we need to make sure that they can keep their home. So when we talk about clean slate and the ability to be able to wipe that clear, seal their records, most of my community members in Schenectady and Albany can't afford expungement lawyers. That's a, a luxury that is avoided to us, right? It's not something that can be done. So this common sense law, because that's what it is, is common sense, gives everyone an opportunity to push forward, to be able to live the life that they deserve because they've already did everything. They served their sentence and they shouldn't have to live this life sentence outside of the place that they came from. So it's with a great pride that I came in today and was asked to speak today. And I don't want to stand in front of these young people. I hope the cameras can see these young people and the size that they have because it's important. 
So if you're a Democrat, as Councilman Owusu just alluded to, and you're standing in the way of this bill and this law being passed into for New York State, you need to check yourself. Any blue won't do. And I implore the people in this area to make sure that your Democrat, whoever it is in the Senate and the Assembly, is doing what's best in your interest and not for themselves. Make sure that they're fighting for the community as a whole, every member of this community. Because when you come home, when you're away, you're still a member of this community. So I ask them to hold that. I don't want to keep everyone too long. I appreciate you guys today. Make sure that you hold every lawmaker accountable. And I'm pleased to say that I know my Schenectady City Council members will be looking to pass this bill as well in support of Clean Slate. So I'm excited to get this done. Let's get it through, y'all. Yes. Sure. If not Democrats, then who? If not now, then when? What do we want? Clean slate. What do we want? Now. What do we want it? Clean slate. What do we want? Now. Clean slate. Can't wait. I'm recording this for radio. Yeah. Could you tell me your name? Uh, Paul Zuber. I'm Executive Vice President of Business Council of New York State. Nice to have you here today. <laughs> Thank so you. you really believe in this issue. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, second chance legislation uh, or second chance uh, initiatives are a big um, issue with a lot of our members. So we started out working with second chance initiatives. Um, the U.S. Chamber has been a big uh, second chance supporter. And when this uh, legislation came along, uh, we worked with the sponsors to craft legislation that we think addresses the concerns of most businesses. We also realize that there is a economic benefit to getting people jobs and getting people to work. And, you know, like I, I like to remind people, we're talking about people who have paid their debt to society. We're talking about people who have paid their debt to society and continued to be productive members of the community for a significant period of time. So those individuals, they deserve an opportunity. And I also like to remind people, it's an opportunity. It's not, no one's giving anybody a job, but it's giving them the opportunity to be judged on the person they are now rather than the person they were in the past. So I think, you know, that's why it's important to us. There are some clear language in there that deals with jobs that require fingerprinting and jobs that require financial crimes and, and things like that nature that might be problematic for businesses. Um, there's also some liability protections for businesses. But the bottom line is we've seen this throughout many states. Pennsylvania has a clean slate law. And this is just an important piece of legislation to kind of, you know, get people working. We've come out of the pandemic with a workforce shortage of about 500,000 people in New York and about 4 million nationwide. So 4 to 5 million nationwide. So we need folks out there. We need folks who want to work. And this gives them the opportunity. And then the last thing I'll say is, you know, people forget that you can get your record sealed now. But the problem is you need a lawyer. And that's expensive. And there's a lot of folks within communities that can't afford that process. So, you know, all this bill is doing is saying, let's judge these people based on who they are. And, and it's not sealing records immediately when someone comes out of prison. There's an extended period of time where they have to continue to be productive and citizens within their community before that record gets sealed. So, Brilliant. Thanks so very, very much for your time. Thank oh, you. thank you. This has been Andrea Cunliffe for Hudson Mohawk Magazine, reporting from Albany Clean Slate Rally. It's interesting that so much of the business community has begun to rally around this issue, uh, particularly with the high rates of um, 
vacancies in so many positions. And that leads one to question if the business community is supporting it, you know, why, you know, are the Democrats uh, at the state capitol um, been holding this up uh, the last couple of years? And I listened to an interview earlier this week on uh, another radio station and they had an author on and one of the points that he makes is that um, actually people who have been formerly incarcerated ex-offenders tend to have a very high retention rate uh, compared to other uh, employees because they're so grateful to having a job and they're so desperate um, to keep it. And the other interesting thing he pointed out was there, you know, a number of businesses now who actually uh, advertise the fact that they are um, open in their door uh, to former offenders because it plays very well, particularly with the uh, younger consumers. This Saturday, December 10th, is the Holiday Interfaith Justice and Peace Circle at Freedom Square. Troy Bike Rescue is one of the co-sponsors, and they're donating three bikes, which will, be, which will find new owners through a raffle. While picking up the bikes, Sina Bazila Hickey asked them to reflect on the year. So I'm over here at Troy Bike Rescue. I just picked up two bikes that will be donated this Saturday, December 10th at the Peace and Justice Holiday Gathering at Freedom Square. And we got two of the bike rescuers here. Here we have. I'm Greg. And I have. Isaac. Hello. Hello. And, oh, you are working on this beautiful lime green bike. So how does a bike come into the shop? Yeah, so we, uh, we accept donations from the community and we do a couple of recycling events uh, out in the suburbs as well. Um, yeah, so Gilderland and Delmar, and we're really fortunate to have a ton of community support with our program. So is that like a pop-up or is there a bike location? They do uh, two yearly pretty good-sized recycling events uh, in the community uh, up in the suburbs there. Oh, because I'm from Gilderland and I had no idea. What does it mean to have a resource like Troy Bike Rescue in North Troy? Yeah, I think it's really essential. You know, this is a historically under-resourced community and there are no retail bike shops in the city of Troy. We're it. So, you know, between this uptown location and our downtown location, we're able to provide something as a nonprofit that really no one else is, retail, nonprofit or otherwise. So this is the time when people can come in and work on their bikes. It's time to work on and learn how to fix bikes. Um, yeah, I've definitely seen a bunch of volunteers start with um, very like minimal bike repair skills and work their way up to being able to help people coming in with um, you know undiagnosed repairs and figuring out what the issue is and, and solving it on the spot. It's tricky, but um, anybody can learn. Just take some time like anything else. So we're ending up the year, we're reflecting on 2022. What are some highlights of 2022 for Troy Bike Rescue? Yeah, we had a really wonderfully successful uh, downtown shop, raised, uh, raised some money to help hire. For the first time, we have someone dedicated to help out with Youth Shop who is in the community, in the neighborhood, has already has relationships with many of the young people who we work with which is just wonderful. And our downtown shop was able to help fund that. So all those wonderful purchases that everyone made throughout the year, 
then this has always been the vision, uh, ha have it really support our programming in a meaningful way, which it did. Is the downtown shop just seasonal? Only seasonal, so June through October. So what is winter like for bike folks? Do you have to be a hardcore biker to get out on your bike in the winter? Um, it's definitely doable. TBR actually has a zine about winter biking. And uh, if you look at our Instagram, it's up there. Um, but you just got to have the right gear. And uh, with the right gear and a bike that's tuned up for it, um, you can do it. So when you say a zine, is it like the, the old, is the, the Xerox like zine? Like, and where can we find it? Um, there's a few paper copies, but yeah, if, if you look at our, our Instagram, it's up there. It's probably posted like a year ago or more, but every page is up there so you can swipe through and read it just like it was a physical copy in front of you. What other resources should we be having from the community? Like, what would you like to see and what kind of support is needed to help you do the work that you need to do? Uh, funding is always nice, you know, we're, we're, we are one of the few nonprofits that I know of in existence that are entirely funded by the community. We do not rely on grants at all for funding, which is really rare in this world. Um, it's outstanding. It is really special that, is, that there is that much recognition and appreciation for the work that we're doing broadly, you know, over time. It, we, the you know, I moved back to Troy after being away for some time. The fact that Troy Bike Rescue has this reputation and appreciation and respect in the community is really, really amazing. And the fact that we are able to do six days of programming through the summer with it being entirely community funded is really, really incredible. So I participated for the first time in your annual fundraising event, which helps to make your uh, fundraising goals. And something that was really exciting was your cake fundraiser. Can you recap that? Yeah, so we usually have a cake auction at Bike Fest and people make their, their most interesting cake and um, people bid on it and it's usually pretty lively, like people will try to outbid each other, um, but at the end all the money goes towards TBR and funding us through the, the year. And um, it, there's usually some pretty wacky cakes. It's pretty pretty fun to be there and to see them and to eat them. That's the best part. I feel like you missed on all the enthusiasm. People were like bidding off of each other. There were like cake pieces going for like $250. Because it went beyond the actual piece of cake. It went, it was just like the fund way. Like that, that was such a fun idea of how to fund a place. Who came up with that concept? Um, it's just TBR tradition. I don't really know. Ever since I've been going to a bike fest, there was a cake auction. Um, but yeah, that would be a question for for some of the the older volunteers. I don't know who started it, but... We didn't start the fire, but it was always burning or whatever. <laughs> Since the world's been turning. Yeah, no, it, it's one of these cool things that, that is, and that, that's the thing that there really is a feeling that this is bigger than any one of us, which is really, really amazing. I mean, the fact for 21 years, this was our 21st birthday last summer. I'm imagining we're going to do a fundraiser in the, you know, some point in June as well. Um, celebrating 22 years as a 
nonprofit, a bicycle nonprofit that's incredible. So, yeah. And we're really excited to have two bikes plus a gift certificate for this event on this Saturday. What is the history of the relationship between the Sanctuary for Independent Media and Troy Bike Rescue? first bike fest I went to was at the sanctuary so it's definitely been home to some of our gatherings and fundraisers in the past and as a neighbor there's just a, a natural relationship back and forth between TBR and us and we're usually listening to the radio station here in the shop during open shop so the two are intertwined I don't know what the the historical origins I know that there's like some volunteers here who are also volunteers there so there's community members who are part of both organizations. Great to get that like cross pollination of ideas and. Yeah. Andrew Lynn was on our board. Right. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Andrew's one of the founders of TBR, so there's definitely that relationship there. Well, we're really glad that we're in a relationship with you. And as we end this off, what are some bike wishes, some bike hopes for the community in 2023? Um, to keep on keep on growing and get more people on bikes and to keep on making people smile and get outside. What do you think, Isaac? Yeah, I, I, that's exactly right. I, you know, this is something I think people get intimidated by retail shops. Sometimes we're pretty non-judgmental crew, <laughs> you know, um, you know, it's an accessible thing. It doesn't have to be riding a bike is riding a bike. It doesn't have to be any grand statement of, anything it's just getting on and going and that's a wonderful accessible thing you know that's practical transportation for for so many people here and yeah thank you so much oh thank you always a pleasure thanks i remember when we first started the hudson mohawk independent media center uh, which eventually morphed into the sanctuary independent media then andrew lynn a young rpi student at that point uh, was one of the, the initial uh, volunteers. The Holiday Interfaith Justice and Peace Circle at Freedom Square is this Saturday, December 10th from 3.30 to 5. There will be arts and crafts, warm beverages, snacks, political letter writing, and photos before we gather to light candles together and say wishes of justice and peace. And that's our show. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm Sally Becker. And I'm Mark Dunley. Our engineer is the ever-working Cena Basila Hickey. Uh, we want to thank all the volunteers who made this episode possible, uh, including Andrea Cunliffe for her uh, segment on uh, Clean Slate. And uh, thank you for, for Sally for being a co-host um with me uh, this program covers stories of social and environmental justice produced by the community for the community um if you want to help out go to mediasanctuary.org we want to hear from you find us on twitter instagram and facebook at media sanctuary or send us an email to hmm at mediasanctuary.org tune in weekdays at 7 a.m 9 a.m and 6 p.m to hear local news or stream Sanctuary Radio at mediasanctuary.org. Full episodes are, and individual stories are available on demand at our website and on your favorite podcast platform. Until next time.